Hello and welcome to Bramcast, a podcast by the Bram Stoker Club of the University Philosophical Society, Trinity College Dublin. My name is Stephen O'Sullivan, and I'll be your host for today. Today, we are joined by the legend of Irish journalism that is Vincent Brown. From his early days writing with Newsight in the North to his retirement from his late-night political talk show, Vincent has been a constant presence in the Irish media for the last 60 years whether in print, on the radio, or on the TV. His establishment of the McGill magazine redefined investigative journalism in Ireland, publishing deep stories such as the Berry Diaries, which documented new evidence on what really happened during the arms crisis of 1970. He also set up and edited Village Magazine, served as editor of the Sunday Tribune, hosted TV and radio shows with RTE, and questioned politicians with the fervour most had never known on Tonight with Vincent Brown. Today, Vincent talks about his time in college, about whether college is actually the best time of one's life. We discuss the troubles, his thoughts on the conflict and its early days, about the Sunningdale Agreement, John Hume, and how history will judge Jerry Adams. We talk about Charlie Hawhey, about the arms trial, and about separating the politics from the person. Finally, Vincent shares his thoughts on the present and future of Irish journalism, on the changes that he has seen over the years, and whether it is even reasonable to give an answer to the question, are you optimistic about the future? It was an honor to be joined by Vincent Brown. Vincent Brown, thank you for coming on the Bramcast. How is uh, retirement treating you? I don't feel retired, but um, so I don't, I don't experience that yet. So you're kept busy? Yes. Your time in college, Vincent. People do say that college is the best time of your life. Would you agree with that statement? No. Why? I don't agree. Because I've had better times in my life, including now. Yeah. I agree. I think, um, I hope so anyways. You were involved in journalism from a young age in college, weren't you? I went to college intending to, to, to do law and terms and politics. I do law in the King's Inns intended to be a barrister. But I got caught up in journalism when I was there. I wrote for a magazine called Awake. And I then persuaded the Irish Times to run a column on UCD notes, which it did every week. And uh, then I, I fell into journalism rather than actually to a decision to go into journalism. But I enjoyed it. You, you set up the College Tribune too while you were there, that did was you? very much later. This was about 19, mid-1980s, I think. Okay. You were involved in Young Finnegan at that time too? I was. Um, when I went to UCD, uh, the only party that was that had a, a common there was Fianna Fáil, I think, and I think Finnegan. And uh, Finnegan was in office, or Finnegan was in office. So I joined the only opposition party. But I, uh, after a while, I, I became enthused by Declan Costa and the Just Society. And, but of course, this was all fantasy stuff. The uh, Finnegan more believed in Just Society than they believed in, I was going to say hell. They probably did believe in hell. But um, in fact, they, they sure did. But in any event, um, uh, I, I left uh, Sri Gale later on. I know that was 
at the time of Cosgrave, but Garrett was coming onto the scene then. Wouldn't you say he'd be of a different cut and he was a more concerned leader? Yes, but Garrett wasn't uh, that committed to a just society either. Uh, he was very much a liberal rather than a lefty socialist. Uh, and he was very preoccupied by Northern Ireland. And in that regard, I thought his, his politics were very good. And he became a good, we became good friends, and that lasted till his death. Um, but he, in many ways, sucked the energy out of the Just Society thing. Could you elaborate on that? I'm not familiar with the, the Just Society. It was a radical proposal to basically reduce inequality in our society. And uh, uh, I made many other proposals related to that. Uh, and I think Declan Costello, who later became president of the High Court, he was son of John A. Costello, who had been Taoiseach there. Um, I think that he, he he engaged in that initiative in anticipation that um, this would be unacceptable to Fine Gael and he'd leave and go join the Labour Party. But Fine Gael was bounced into accepting it. Uh, I didn't believe what didn't believe in it at all. Garrett thought he was in favour of much more equal society than we had, and the way he was, but he wouldn't have gone on with just society, even though he had some part in drafting it. Garrett's Northern Ireland Ireland policy, you said you would have been in favour of. When the troubles broke out, were you um did you expect it to be as bad and to go on as long as it did? No, not at all. Uh, I was involved in a magazine called Newsite at the time, and um, I thought it, it would, the troubles there would peter out within a few weeks. And to some extent, that happened. Like that, this was the civil rights movement, which was very successful. Civil rights, the British government and the Stormont government were forced into agreeing to meet all the civil rights demands, and that happened. But uh, then, of course, the provisional IRA started up and that that was to forcibly create a United Ireland irrespective of the wishes of majority people in Northern Ireland. And uh, that could never have been successful. And uh, it was a disaster. When Sunningdale happened, that was... Sunningdale was 72, I think. And that was... 73. 73. Like, that was a matter of years after the outbreak... It was quite soon after the outbreak. The outbreak of the violence started in late 1970. I was living in Northern Ireland at the time as a journalist there. <coughs> and uh, 1971 was a, a massive slaughter and interrogation was introduced in 1971, which was a disaster. And uh, then people began to think of a way out of out of all this, um, the Stormont government uh, was prorogued, as they called it, in 1972, I think. And uh, then people began to search for alternative ways of achieving a consensus in Northern Ireland, uh, hence the Sunnydale Agreement. The Sunnydale Agreement was, uh, in many respects, more advanced than the Good Friday Agreement which is one of the reasons that it failed. 
that it was more advanced. In what ways do you think? Because it was the the unionist strikes that kind of led to the demise of it, right? Mm. In, in particular, with regard to giving executive powers to a council of Ireland, and uh, that didn't happen in the Good Friday Agreement, and it was that giving the executive powers to the council of Ireland that was the one most and that most enraged unionist opinion in the north. Do you think that the provisional IRA would have come around to the Sunny Deal, given they weren't as involved in that as they were in the Good Friday Agreement talks? Oh, no, so the, the, good, the provisional IRA was about uh, creating a United Ireland and forcing, uh, forcing a United Ireland on the people of the North. And that was it, the United the Sunnydale Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement didn't do that. So you think so in one sense the Sunningdale wouldn't have prevented violence from spreading in the well, north. Well it didn't. Mm -hmm. John Hume, there's a great clip on the RT archives of you interviewing him in the States. He was on um I think William Buckley Jr.'s show and you were in the audience. But um John Hume went into Sunningdale kind of having gone back on some words he said. So he said he wouldn't talk with the British unless internment ended, but it wasn't ended before then. And your question was about bringing the, the, the Catholic population with him. My question is, John Hume emerged as a nationalist leader of the SCLP. He wasn't a nationalist. No, okay, a, a leader of the Catholics. Okay, yeah, the SCLP won that. Do you think it was better that he ended up that way as opposed to a leader of an independent party, for example, the Alliance, because I know Alliance approached him to become a leader in the early days? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I've never thought about that. It may be that going the Alliance way would have been more fruitful for uh, uh, SDLP became quite nationalist uh, after a while. It was SDLP was a hodgepodge of people on the left and and nationalists. Um, like Jerry Fish and Paddy Devlin were on the left. They're both um, MPs of Belfast, and uh, then you had people like Austin Curry and others who were just died in mode nationalists and. And Hume, who was not a nationalist, um, they the, the six original I knew the six original founders of DSLP, and uh, they drank voraciously, uh, and they were great fun, uh, and they were a, an important presence in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. But uh, then, of course, they were swept aside. Uh, with the emergence of Sinn Féin after the Troubles ended. You wrote in the Irish Times that the the level of hatred towards Jerry Adams isn't in, in proportionate to maybe what he deserves or what the credit he deserves. Um, Jerry Adams' role in the Troubles, will history view him in a better light than he currently is or a worse light? Because we, we in, right now, you know, young people don't seem to be too concerned with what the provisional IRA did with respect to Sinn Féin. I wonder, will that change in the future? The idea of what history will judge is nonsense. Um, different P 
people who write history come to different conclusions, radically different conclusions. And I assume some people will accord him a lot of credit, primarily for getting the IRA to stop killing people. Uh, others will focus on how is the, the main person in the IRA for so long. Uh, uh, he was there for all the appalling atrocities occurred. And he must he was responsible for some of them, like the Jim Convent one, which is appalling. Um so the judgment of history is, is a silly idea. Mm-hmm. Sorry for saying No, that. not at all. <laughs> it's not the judgment of history, say the judgment of one's comrades in the IRA. Because uh, I think that's another thing. Some people in the IRA, including his his first cousin, thinks he was a British agent all along and deserves to be assassinated. Uh, others think he was a humanist figure and and uh, deserves great credit. So again, there's very good. I I I know him a f- fair bit, and uh, I admire him because he he was the only person in the negotiations Good Friday Agreement who risked his life, uh, and he believed that he would be assassinated by his own side, and he may well yet be. Really? Yeah. In in 2015, the, the PSNI released a, re- a report and they said that, um, I know it's some time ago now, but they said that they believe that all the paramilitary organizations are still in existence. But there was another part in the report that said that almost credited the fact that discipline couldn't have been held for so long and the peace process couldn't have been maintained for so long, but for that um, paramilitary aspect. Do you think that um, Sinn Féin as a political party, if it were solely after the peace process of political party, that peace could have been maintained without that link to the remaining army council? Well, I'm suspicious of Sinn Féin. Um, I'm suspicious of them because of two factors. One is that they're in denial over what the provisional IRA did over those decades. And secondly, because uh, their desperation to get into what they call power will mean that they'll be the same as uh, the other. I've often said recently that Sinn Féin will be the new Fine Gael, not even Fianna Fáil, the new Fine Gael. I see on a previous episode of the podcast, um, Ono Malley, the DCU professor, was on, and he said it was much more analogous to Fianna Fáil, that um, Sinn Féin... The, the party that's emerging now would be much more analogous to Fianna Fáil, you know, in the early days. Uh, well, he's, he's right, actually, but I, I say Fianna Fáil because that would annoy them more. Okay, fair enough. Um, another man to do with Fianna Fáil, Charlie Hawhey. Not to go back into the history, you know, judging history again, but Justine McCarthy said that history would be much more balanced in its assessment of him than journalists have been. Do you think that history will look fonder on Hawhey than journalists have? No. Do you think that he was a different man before and after the, the arms trial? No. 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 Because reading before the arms trial, notwithstanding whatever the, you know, the financial 
irregularities before and after. But I mean, he brought in, um, I think, the street travel for pensioners. He brought in the kind of ending of executions, except for the fact that the guards he brought in. He was opposed to. He he wanted to. Uh, he did address the while he was in the Department of Justice. Uh, he dealt with the issue of the death penalty, and this was had been considered by uh, governments before before that, and um, he himself was in favour of uh, curtailing the death penalty, uh, but keeping it for people who uh, who threatened the state, namely the IRA, uh, but. But uh, he was dissuaded from that, and uh, it was only in respect of uh, killing of Gaudi and of soldiers, I think, that emerged finally. Do you think he was treated unfairly around the arms trial? No, not at all. No. Uh, he, he was up to his neck and he lied about it, and lied and lied about it. Uh, it was, his behaviour was appalling. Uh, and he was lying about it endangered the defence of his co-accused, who some of whom believed uh, the, ar the uh, attempted arms importation had been authorised by the government, which of course is untrue. But why going the other side weakened that defence? Do you think that the, if not authorised, Lynch was more aware than he let on? Yes. That's not authorised though. No. But I suppose one could say that Lynch, the possibility of him lying to. I, I think that he didn't tell the truth about uh, being informed about what was going on. Peter Berry told him in uh, October of 1969. Allegedly, Michal Moran, the Minister of Justice, told him on a number of occasions. But James, Jim Gibbons told him on a few occasions what was going on. And he did nothing about it. He was a very weak and indecisive Taoiseach. And then he was forced into doing what he did by Liam Cosgrove. When, when the Berry diaries were released, was that um, was it a surprising revelation that it, what Berry said with respect to having told Lynch? Was it a surprise that there wasn't that that was another piece of corroborating evidence? Because I think Colonel Heffernan had also said that during the trial that Lynch was aware. Well, he knew. Colonel Heffernan knew only uh, uh, only via Captain Kelly. He didn't have any private conversations with Lynch. Mm -hmm. So it was Captain Kelly that Captain Kelly would have told him that uh, that the government approved of this. Not specifically Lynch, but the government approved of it. You had a friendship with Hawhey towards the end of his life. Um, what kind of a man was he personally? Well, I, I, I first met him around 1968 in his mansion at the time in Grangemore uh, in Rohini, as before he moved to uh, Abbeville in Kinsale. Uh And I met him on and off throughout his career. When he was Taoiseach, I was very critical of, of him as Taoiseach. And we weren't friendly during that time. But when he wasn't he should we'd resume friendship again. Um but I uh, he nearly died in two thousand and two and 
I sent him a note saying, oh, don't don't go yet. We, we want to kick you around a bit more. And he phoned me and I went out to see him and I then saw him about 20 times before he died. And during that time, I I became very fond of him and liked him a lot. I disagreed with his politics almost in every detail, but that didn't matter. You seem to have been able to all have always like distinguished the person from the politics, which I don't know, I think this is a rare thing nowadays because when people are critical of people in politics now, whether that be columnist critical or, you know, journalist critical or other politicians, it seems very personal now. It seems very vitriolic that the person is innately bad themselves for believing what they do. Yes, uh, I think that's true and I think it's wrong. Uh, I know very few people who agree with me on everything. In fact, there, there is nobody who agrees with me, including my wife and my children. But um, but that doesn't matter. And, and they might be right, actually. <laughs> so, Do people disagree? Oh, yeah. Not, not fundamentally, but uh, <laughs> but uh, that's like that's the way it is. Like it's that's fairly commonplace of everything. It is. I, I, it seems to be becoming more. It seems to be becoming less common. Um, another example is nearly every students' union now in Ireland is is boycotting the Irish Times. Um, now. I think the issue that they're boycotting is distinct from the boycott itself. Like, to boycott, I think, a newspaper because you disagree with some of the articles that were published. What, I don't know. It's um, a, It started with a particular article in the Irish Times that was critical of um, legislation to do with transgender because a, a few psychologists thought were skeptical that they would be open to uh, I don't lawsuits or litigation if the legislation went through, but that progressed into a broader boycott of the paper itself for what they said was an anti, you know, transgender ethos. But I don't think that's an anti. No, is it? I hardly ever read the editorials in the Irish Times or anywhere else. But but uh, the transgender issue has been dealt with by the Irish Times uh, and they've allowed debate to go on for and against and so it's a bit silly uh, I agree with you um, especially in comparison to the other papers the Irish Examiner and the Irish Independent from people that write for both papers self-admittedly would be a lot less liberal than the Irish Times in that issue but it, like I said the issue to one side I just think it's a bad sign that people are boycotting one of the, whether, because you wouldn't be a fan of the Irish Times in many respects yourself, would you? The, oh, yeah. the editorial. Well, I don't read the editorials. I, I only very occasionally. Um, but I, I, I wrote for the Irish Times for 20 years. Uh, so I'd have a fondness for the Irish Times. And they never told me during that 20 years what to write or, or what I should write. Uh, uh, so, I'm surprised to hear about that boycott. That said, um, even if they didn't tell you what to write, would you say that working for certain newspapers that there's limitations put on you as a journalist compared to, say, when you were running McGill or the Sunday Tribune, when 
you know, very long form journalism was allowed, multi thousand word articles. Well, it, it was a different form, uh, and and McGill, we, like we often published uh, pieces of six thousand words uh, or more, and the magazine allows that, uh, but you can't do that in a newspaper. That would take over two broadsheet pages with no photographs. <laughs> it was just C. McCarthy said it last time, actually. She said working for the Tribune was one of the best things because there was such liberty given. Uh, I wasn't there when she was in the Tribune. Um, I don't know. Um, but I've never been in a situation where anybody told me what to do or to write or not write or broadcast. I had, I worked, I, I did radio program for RTE for 11 years and nobody ever told me what to do. And I uh, did television program for TV3, 10 years. Nobody ever told me what to do. Which format did you prefer? Writing your radio or TV? Writing. Uh, I never got a buzz out of broadcast, broadcasting. Um, I got bought out of uh, written journalism, which I didn't get from broadcast. How about the Irish media landscape as a whole now? Would you, would you have faith in the institution of journalism in Ireland now? I don't have faith at all. No. I'm leaving. Okay. <laughs> well, say comparative to previous years. Um, uh, I think the independent newspapers has improved a lot since it was taken over by media hosts. Uh, certainly the Sunday Independent is much better than it was previously. So that's an improvement. Uh, the Irish press group of newspapers is a loss, they, but the and the Devil Area family used it as their personal fiefdom and they made a total hames of it. Um, and the Irish Times, which almost went under in the early 1960s and was rescued by Douglas Gatesby. And it has performed a very useful role in Irish society. And it's been a, almost a platform where people can converse. And I don't think that that has weakened in the last one. I'd be critical of the Irish Times. Their news this week and their politics coverage this week, I think. And they lead most days with a story that we all knew from the television the night before. But still, it's an important newspaper. What's the biggest change, do you think, in journalism that came? Is it is it recognisable from when you were... The internet is a huge change. Mm-hmm. And the internet has changed loads of things, but particularly journalism. Like the access that uh, the internet gives us is amazing. Like we can, like how we were able to find out anything before the internet era, I can't remember. But they did, it, this this has transformed journalism uh, in a good way. Even with the rise of false journalism that's uh, spread through the internet. I'm just talking about newspapers and mm -hmm. that's, as a journalist, it's much easier now. You can write, you can 
uh, write more authoritatively now than was previously the case because of the access that the internet allows. How about s- exclusively online journalist organizations? Say the Ditches one. It seemed to have a rise and fall with, I'd say, the, the, the man that funded it was kind of a wannabe Murdoch in some respects. Do you think that that's a positive development? Uh, when did it ever produce anything that mattered? I, the issues that matter in our society, principally, in my view, are, in, well, number one is inequality, and which still pertains, and people go on about it, and people claim, oh, well, it's a little better than it was last year, or so, but the fundamental, there's fundamental inequality in our society, and we don't really acknowledge it, and we don't do anything about it, or very little about it. And, and the failure of the media generally to deal with that sort of, the, that, that issue, I think, is a real problem. But that was always a problem. Do you think the media has gotten, as, as society has become richer, and the, do you think the newspapers, as a consequence of that, have kind of lost attention in that inequality as an issue? Well, I, the newspapers were, very, were never that much interested in the inequality. Uh, the media wasn't. A few, a few general questions now. Your shows were always on. The radio was late at night. The TV was late at night. But you have always been a night owl yourself. <laughs> um, yes, really, you know. You would have got up in, early in the morning, as Leo said. Um. Well, I need to, yeah. What story, looking back, would you say you're most proud of? <laughs> um, not many. Um, I, I think that the focus I eventually acquired on inequality helped my journalism a lot. Uh, but that was very late in my career. And, uh, and also, I came to believe that nationalism is insidious and that it did terrible harm to this country. I, as exemplified by that politics was almost exclusively about partition for decades and decades and decades. While, we, while a million people left our, our country because of the state of the country, there was terrible poverty, uh, massive inequality and but we were obsessed with partition and nationalism did and of course nationalism then gave rise to violence and which achieved nothing at the IRA campaign from 1970 to 1996 94, 6 depending on your achieved nothing nothing and they killed 1,760 people. Uh, but do you think that nationalism was the cause for not focusing on, you know, everyone leaving? Because we seem to live in a society now where nationalism isn't of much import anymore. I mean, Sinn Féin, even at the Ardesh, the main topic was housing. Do you think that one's preoccupation with nationalism over the years was an altogether independent or... As you say, it's less of a feature of politics now, and it seems less relevant. But you still have people claiming that 
what uh, the IRA did was justified or there was no alternative or whatever. And like one of the things we had is that we, we glorified violence in the War of Independence, for instance. And the more we look at what happened during the War of Independence, the more we see that terrible things were done. And we never had the urge or the courage to examine what happened and the terrible, awful atrocities that were perpetrated during that time. And had that done, uh, had that happened, uh, maybe the provisional IRA campaign might not have emerged or not been so devastating as it was. What would you say to people of a third level age demographic now about the violence, about the history that we don't seem to be acknowledging or remembering enough? Well, I probably, I would say I wouldn't raise the issue at all unless it came up in conversation, I, I would imagine. I, I asked because, well, we said it back and forth, there seems to be a glorification or at least a tolerance for violence of late that wasn't there, you know, during the peace process. Well, see, give me an example of that. Just to do with Sinn Féin. It just, it's, not, it's not an issue anymore. When people discuss Sinn Féin, it doesn't seem to be an issue, the history. Yeah. Um... Or say, for example, obviously it is atrocious what's happening in Gaza right now. But immediately after, there was a small but loud subset that said of the Hamas attack, like this is anti-colonialism at work. As opposed to learning the lessons of that we've had in Ireland and saying this method of political resistance isn't? Uh, my own view was that the Hamas attack on Israelis on October the 7th was, was utterly appalling and indefensible. And I say indefensible whether by virtue of things that happened before or not. It was indefensible. But then, but now, what, what Israel is doing is just, it's just appalling. And, and how, if America were standing by and arming Israel, hadn't armed Israel, uh, maybe that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't be happening. But it's just horrific what's going on now. Last question. What topic do you think about every single day? I think about the project that I'm supposed to be involved in and what progress I have made or haven't made. That's what I think. <laughs> I see grandchildren a lot and obviously I think of them and I've got my circle of friends. Are you optimistic for the future? For my future? Or <laughs> yeah, for, for the future of Ireland? I, yeah. Like we've no way. It's almost a meaningless question because we have no idea what's going to happen. Climate change has come upon us in the last 10 or 15 years. Our, our awareness of it has emerged only in the last 10 or 15 years. And that could have enormous impact on our lives, on people's lives. Pandemics, uh, I don't know if we're, we're more prone to pandemics than we were previously, but Maybe we are. Artificial intelligence, we don't know. 
uh, what, what that's going to bring. So there's so much we don't know about. And to say you're optimistic or pessimistic, I think this, like how, how, not knowing so much, how can you, how can you say that? Mm-hmm. Well, keep the faith, as Mick Clifford says. <laughs> thank you very much, Vincent Brown. Okay, thank you. That was our conversation with Vincent Brown. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening to Bramcast.